and welcome to Sip Sip Hooray, the podcast for wine lovers and people who want to know more about this magical beverage and the people who make it. Family wineries are a standard in Europe, but in America's relatively young wine history, it's unusual to find families where a winemaking and farming tradition has been handed down through the generations. But winemaking and farming are definitely in our guest Scott Caraccioli's blood. He is the fourth generation carrying out a beloved family tradition. Caraccioli Cellars has its vineyards in the famed Santa Lucia Highlands and a tasting room in Carmel, where we are located today. We are the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm Mary Babbitt. And I'm Mary Orlin. Scott and his family put Monterey County on the map when it comes to sparkling wine. Um, His bubbles have been compared to top cuvées from Champagne and have won numerous awards. But Scott would tell you that his bubbles are uniquely Santa Lucia Highlands, uniquely Monterey County. Um, Spend some time with Scott and his passion and encyclopedic knowledge of grape growing and winemaking can't help but impress you. And of course, his wines always impress. But um, while Scott is known, and Caraccioli Cellars, of course, is known for sparkling wine, um, it's also becoming known for Syrah and Gamay, and we will find out more about this evolution um, from, from bubbles to still wines as well. But don't worry, there's plenty of bubbly to go around. So Scott, welcome to Sip Sip Hooray. Thank you, and appreciate it. Happy to be here, Mary. So we're so glad that you're with us today, and I love that this is in your blood and, and you know, this family tradition. Tell me about that. Yeah, so my family has been agricultural row crop farmers for generations, and that's been our focus, and we still do that full bore from my brother and cousins and uncle and father, and then I kind of fell backwards into a project that they started, um, my father and uncles, in terms of taking less than idyllic ag land on the valley floor outside of Gonzales and developing it into a Chardonnay and Pinot vineyard that we ultimately believed would be really a great spot for making site-specific grower sparkling wine from beginning of farming all the way through the bottle and really owning the whole process. So being able to get to this point and deliver um, things that are now fully off of the estate, which 2015 was the first year that was completely all from a school. And we're going to taste 2016 sparkling wines today. So second vintage in fully a school is really exciting for us because the 10 years prior were very proud of, but the goal was always to get on property and mm-hmm. we never wanted to make that transition before the vineyard was ready. We started it in 12 and kind of stepped up and now where we're at, it's, um, it's really fun to see the development and the maturation of the vineyard at the same time as, uh, Caraccioli as a brand is honing out some of the, uh, some of the finer points of which blocks to use for sparkling wine and which blocks to use for still wine and like. Well, this, I mean, congratulations for all of that, but this was something that you got, you learned from your grandpa? Um, so my grandfather on my mother's side worked for Marisu for many years. Um, 
And I actually never learned anything from grapes from him because he passed away too young. I remember being around it when I was a kid. I remember the mechanical harvesters, the all night rush. I remember uh, the adrenaline being around him um, when that was going on. And my grandmother as well was uh, very involved in Marisu from the early 80s through, I think, like late 90s, um, which was outside of Soledad. And then basically... Um, that kind of obviously transitioned with my grandfather's passing, but at the same time, my father, my great uncle on my father's side and my uncle all started this project and with the goal of planning the 124 acres and simultaneously kind of the real impetus for the sparkling piece of this with my father's belief in it and the know-how was him meeting Michelle Salg, who had recently left Rotor Estate. We're talking about 2006 now. And uh, Michelle retired from Rotor in 2004. Uh, so this was really his passion project, as much as it was my family's passion project at the same time. Uh, Michelle didn't consult for a dozen wineries when he retired. It was really us, a project later that was in the south of uh, England that's now into fruition called Hundred Hills. And then he had like one uh, indigenous varietal project in Turkey. So this was his baby as much as it was my family's baby. And the two of those things together, I think led to a lot of um, collaboration from what the vision was from my father and uncle's side and Michelle's idiosyncratic execution all the way through. Well, let's talk about Eskol, the vineyard that is the foundation for Caraccioli Cellars. Um, it is not only one of the top vineyards in the Santa Lucia Highlands, but within the state of California. Um, but set the scene for us. Um, talk about where a skull is and what makes it special. Yeah. Um, so we're in Monterey County on the inland side of the coastal foothills, which is where the Santa Lucia Highlands lie. And it's basically a band of about 200 feet of elevation to 800 ele feet of elevation in terms of where the highlands, I think, ride the majority of all of the vineyards that are in there. I think there's a couple outliers. Um, but you have a huge wind influence from the depth of Monterey Bay, which brings the prolific acidity that is definitely present in all of our wines. Um, and really gives the structure to be able to produce four-year tirage site-specific uh, method champenois sparkling wine in a phenolic development pocket where at 19 bricks you do have grapes that are phenolically like developed and not green and you also have a great acid structure so being at a school in the Northern Highlands, which is the colder end of the Highlands, um, having the influence to that wind from Monterey really made it an idyllic spot, not only for still wine, but also sparkling. Um, the vineyard of a school is right outside of Gonzales. If you were to take Gonzales River Road and hit River Road, we are basically the boot in front of you. It's 124 acres, which is majority Pinot. There's about 27 acres of Chardonnay about five, six acres of Gamay and Syrah each. Um, it doubles in elevation. It goes from about two and change to about five. 
definitely has kind of on an exposed boot. We're one block south of Talbot Sleepy Hollow and a couple blocks north, there's some lemons between like us and McIntyre on Sanchez. So if you're looking at kind of the juxtaposition within the highlands, we're on the more northern, cooler part, which makes a lot of sense for making sparkling wine. Absolutely. That's, that's rarefied air over there. I mean, that's where everybody wants their grapes from. Sparkling wine, I think it's time to taste a little. And um, you said it, it was always the goal when you started Caraccioli to become all estate. And, um, let's t- and you've, um, so you've had some evolution where you eventually became all estate. And you've also made an evolution in terms of the composition of your, your sparkling that we have in this glass. So tell us what we're sipping. Yeah, so in your glass, you have 2016 Caraccioli Cellars Blanc de Blanc. Um, so 100% Chardonnay. All of our cuvées from 2006 to 2015 were 60% Chardonnay, 40% Pinot base. The Brut Cuvée, the Brut Rosé, um, that was the heart of what we were doing. And I think making single varietal sparkling wines is one of the more difficult things to be able to achieve because in general, you're blending things at a lower bricks level. So some things don't have everything. It doesn't have a front. Its middle is a little soft. The finish is weak. Maybe the acid isn't as strong. You blend all those components together and you end up with a cohesive cuvee that's telling the story that you want. More rarely than that is the fact that you end up harvesting one single block from one place and that actually through um, primary vinification, you start to identify as maybe being something unique, something special that doesn't need any distinction on top of that. And this wine was the first time that we ever had a tank that we felt really had everything on its own. Um, and it was the second year that we were a state uh, as at 16. So knowing exactly what we were getting, having full control, which I think is important in all winemaking is as much control as you can exhibit. But in sparkling wine is very important. The day that you harvest is more 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 reliant on the quality that you're going to get down the end um grapes are maturing faster at about 19 bricks and a lot of times yesterday's an okay answer tomorrow's an okay answer today's the right answer (laughs) so going as much as we can um on a state being reliant on all of our own sampling even though we sampled other vineyards when we were sourcing for the beginning um of caraccioli it's just another level of transparency when you're the you're the people farming it. So that level of intricacy, I think, allowed us to achieve what's in the glass. Um, Michelle had never made a Blanc de Blanc. Uh, it was one of those things where when he and I talked about it, it was uh, Michelle was a constant contrarian. His general uh, belief structure, anything outside of it was no. And um, in terms of just wine in general, and well, he was the most awesome, humble man. So when I said, hey, we should take, you know, tank 2A and let's take a cage of that, keep it separate, bottle it as Blanc de Blanc, I was pretty sure I was going to go against a brick wall in mm-hmm. terms of his buy-in. And then there was a lot of silence 
And eventually he told me that there was a problem with the idea and I was just kind of waiting for what the problem was going to be the whole time because <laughs> I knew there was something I didn't see or just wasn't thinking about. And he ultimately told me that it was, uh, the problem was it was my idea and not his. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. So, oh, yeah. And it wasn't even my idea. It was just what had rolled up. But, um, but doing sparkling is a lot of work. I mean, people shy away from it because it requires constant tending, you know, you're riddling and all of that. I mean, it's not like you put it, you bottle it and you're done. No. So you're touching the bottles a lot more than you would with a still wine. Just the amount of touches Mm -hmm. is a lot higher Mm -hmm. from a process standpoint. I mean, to get it through primary and then from a standpoint of... um, when we separate the cuvées, we bottle the cuvées, uh, do dosage trials on all of the individual cuvées, what will be best. I mean, um, red wine trials ultimately when we make the rosé, and then it goes into secondary. When it comes out of secondary, then we do the dosage trials on all of those. So you're, you're very involved in the baby every step of the way. But you got a lot of time to do it. I mean, this is 16s, so... Did that ever scare you, that work level on it? And not work in terms of this is hard, but this is labor intensive. Did that, did you ever think, well, do we really want to take that on? uh, It wasn't really my decision. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, my father and uncles were already full bore into it when I came into the project to, and like to sell it was what I started doing and then kind of fell in love with all the other pieces, why people start wineries, the walking in the vineyard, the cellar work, the all-night harvest, all of the all of the stuff, the romanticism became just kind of day-to-day for me. And at the same time, I loved it. Well, well I was going to say, as a big fan of Bubbles, I am so glad you guys took it off. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's terrific. Your product yeah. is fantastic. And, and, it's a beautiful wine. And this is such a gorgeous wine. Um, and the acidity is fantastic. There's a creaminess to it. I definitely think that... Uh, it showcases the structure of a school. You've got a little bit of mid-palate softness, and then it kind of finishes on a little bit of that chalk structural yeah. finish that lingers throughout. Um, I think it's a perfect representation of Chardonnay. I think if you tasted our Chardonnays as well as some of our peers were uh, that I sell fruit to, out of a school, there's a lot of similarities in what this wine expresses as well as what their still wines and our still wines express at 23 24 bricks where this is at 19 Mm -hmm. so to me that's that's the goal you you want this you want to pick a good site and you want the site to showcase itself in all of the wines that you're making so i think um being as transparent as possible this wine does Chardonnay from a school very well. Beautifully. I was happy about it. And, you know, it really seems to go beautifully with burritos, which is, <laughs> we're recording this in the morning, and we started with some breakfast burritos paired with a little bubbly. Yes, very, very nice. Um, I mean, just these fantastic burritos from a wonderful local market. Mm-hmm. Um, bubbles and burritos. I mean, that's, right? why not? Who says wine is snobby? Not at all. No, some of the best things are... Uh, not fussy. Exactly. So I've got so another wine too, another sparkling. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Stay Vintage. 
And this is the Brut Rosé, so 2016, which mm. has a little bit of Pinot Noir added back between fermentations. So we will ultimately figure out about what percentage we would like to add by binding ourselves on it. We'll set up a trial of barrel of Pinot that was vinified as Caraccioli still wine Pinot. Um, we'll do it at different introduction levels, half a percent, percent, percent and a half, two. We'll, sit, we'll b- double blind ourselves, me and the winemaking team, and we'll see exactly where we feel like, A, it's very Caraccioli-esque in terms of, I think our rosé has been very popular over the years. I think Michelle was onto something about how we make rosé and being very deliberate about it and adhering to kind of those steps and those processes uh, it makes us know where we're going before we, where we're going and how we're getting there before we even get in the car. And I think there's something to this expression being a little bit more of a Pinot Noir driven expression compared to even our brute. And then showing the extremity next to the Blanc de Blanc is just, I think, a fun juxtaposition between the two because they're probably on the two, um, as tight of a range in style that I think Caraccioli is, we they're probably like the two expressions that live the furthest apart from each other mm-hmm. within our uh, within our spectrum. I, I just love sparkling rosés, and this is just mm. this is really delicious. It is it's fantastic. beautiful wine. Thank you. Definitely does a lot of um, a lot more red fruit. To me, mm-hmm. where yes. the Chardonnay is more floral, right. definitely has a lot of the citrus and some mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the um, stone lighter stone fruit characteristics. This does strawberries out of the glass yeah. and kind For of sure. has some of the. Sure. But know, the balance is so nice. It's not. It doesn't doesn't lean towards sweet. It's it's nice and um, fresh and crisp and lovely. Thank you. We like it to. It's been a crowd favorite, so I probably tinker with this wine the least, aside from just tinkering with the base cuvee in terms of um, running different clones in and out from different blocks in and out Mm -hmm. and making it more dynamic of a base cuvee before we even add the red wine to it. So you've had an evolution in transitioning to all estate, and now you have your own winemaking facility. So let's talk about the new winery. Yeah, so that happened in the glorious year of 2020. Um, <laughs> Which we all remember is such a winner. Yeah. Uh, we made the decision, I think it was the first week of February, maybe even the last week of January, to uh, move our winery from Carmel Valley um, to downtown Gonzales into a facility that we had used um, for produce production prior. Um, and it was a great opportunity to go into a space that we had that we had full control over uh it's nice when you move into a building and it already has slanted floors and drains um (laughs) so yeah it definitely helps in terms of timeline so we pulled our fed and state application around that time frame i was talking and then the whole world went kind of upside down and i was just hoping that the feds and the state would keep working (laughs) and actually approve it before harvest came in August. And we still had to move everything from Carmel Valley. So 
we had like 55 loads of sparkling wine that was entourage. And we did it all in the middle of the night between like 2 and 5 a.m. Oh, really? So they wouldn't be exposed to any heat okay, wow. or any light. And, and, and that's a bit of a tricky drive at that time of the night from mm-hmm. um, where I know where your previous facility was. Not the not the straightest road. <laughs> um, definitely, definitely was glad that I had the guys doing it that were doing it. Uh, Carlito and Ernesto have been with us for a long time, so it was one of those things where it, it from the outside in, it was like this is going to be a big job, and then ten days later, it was done, and it was pretty seamless. So it was just one of those things where it was a stepping stone along the way, getting in the new facility being able to set it up for the first harvest. And then we had um, the fire vintage, which we didn't make any red wine that year. So we got to see about half of what she could do. Mm-hmm. And then until last year, we could really kind of uh, get a gauge on what was possible capacity, multiple different wines coming in on the same day, being able to make them. And it's exciting. Um, and to be able to have everything in one location that's completely under control five minutes from the vineyard yes uh as opposed to an hour and a half ride essentially in a truck Mm -hmm. so the upgrade in terms of logistics was very very uh palatable through harvest (laughs) when you're not running around and i'm not running to kashawa and basically the vineyard is right next to each other my triangle got a lot smaller so the pandemic didn't end up slowing you down much uh it just made it more stressful in the slow time and the waiting for everything to get through but it actually uh, i'm glad we made the change when we made the change um and transitioned to where we are uh and i think it was almost it was a necessary goal it was always to get as close to the vineyard as possible. Yeah. Um, especially kind of not making oxidative bubbles. We try to keep the preservation of the fruit to where everything's harvested into YFBs. Everything's done in the middle of the night. The first press load starts getting pressed at like four thirty-five o'clock in the morning. So, I mean, I'm not pressing anything basically past like 11. So it's all really cold. Um, and the, um, the overall control that just the vineyard and the winery gave was, uh, a honing, a next level, a tinkering Mm -hmm. of what we were being able to do. Um, and you just, I believe you always try to get better. Absolutely. That's the bottom line. But like for most of your, uh, local customers, they know you from your, Carmel tasting room where we are today and uh, this is normally a very hopping spot right with people coming in and tasting and uh, we are getting to be here before you open so that uh, having access to customers from not only locally but all over the world people visit Carmel and that they can come right down here to your tasting room is pretty cool too. I'm a big believer that it was a pivotal decision uh, my father made early on in terms of just we wanted to come to where the people were Mm -hmm. um, and not push the ball uphill Uh, at the time we were the second winery I think in town and 
planning commission kind of ran me through the ringer. Mm. Uh, but nothing worth having is easy. So mm, been here 11 years, and it's a great opportunity to be able to have people come visit you when people come in town. It's kind of like that weird thing where if you lived in Vegas, you'd have a lot of friends that came to Vegas every year, and if you wanted to go see them, you could. Mm-hmm. Where being in Monterey and having so many people come to Carmel in like this area, just Monterey County and Carmel, it, I have the opportunity to where, you know, Psalms are around for one reason or another. We've had mm-hmm. Gourmet Fest, we've had Pebble Beach Food and Wine, we've had these events as well as draws from other um, other pockets of hospitality that you're able to meet a lot of people, you're able to meet people from all over the country, you're able to meet, you know, wine enthusiasts for everywhere, people come here for car week, or to golf, and we found that there's a very um, likened customer between that which Carmel has to offer and the consumers of our wine. I think that they're they're similar people in general, so nice. it's worked out relatively that is well. Very cool. Great. So I just have to point out while we still have this beautiful brut rosé in our glass that um, for two years in a row, 2020 and 2021 that um, the Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championship winner, Caraccioli Cellars, um, 2015 Brut Rosé in 2021, and the 2014 Brut Rosé in 2020 have been judged to be the, the world's best sparkling wine by the world's best sparkling wine professionals. Woohoo! That's yeah, big for, stuff. For the U.S. So for the, for it's, the U.S. National yeah, Championship. Yeah, it's like the National Championship for Tom Stevenson. So something we're very excited about, trying to get too honed in on awards. To me, it's um, more like micro changes through the years, but Mm -hmm. it's always very validating that you're on the right path and you're doing the right Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And um, Tom Stevenson, who runs that competition with Essie Avalon, they're they're top tier people. I've met him. Tom was the champagne editor for Decanter for like 30 years before he retired and then he didn't have a conflict of interest and started this competition. So it's just, you're getting being tasted against the best champagne in the world. And he has no problem giving people a bronze. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's something to that, that if, you know, we're performing and our wines are getting golds and, you know, at worst getting silver and competing for best of class or um, national championships that we're, not only kind of continuing down the path we've been on, but incrementally improving as the vineyard matures and our knowledge of the vineyard and our domain, our project overall kind of just deepens. Well, it's got to feel really good. Congratulations. You know, it sounds like you have enough on your plate just with the sparkling to keep you busy, but you guys are also making other wines. Would you tell us about that and, and how you manage it all? Yeah, I've got a few weeks between sparkling and still harvest, so <laughs> it, it works. It works out pretty you just well. Just weren't busy enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it's really a development of the whole entire estate being a school, and what I think would be the best representation of it through multiple different bricks levels. You know, you start at the sparkling at nineteen. I'm pulling still rosé at twenty two and a half. Most of the chardonnay and pinot gets pulled between 23 and 24 and as times went on we've realized 
there was opportunity for other varietals that I think would do very well on the vineyard. Um, the geologic composition is all granitic, metamorphic schist. It's all chular sandy loam. So you've got granite and mm -hmm. things that work well on granite being Syrah and Gamay really as I've had the opportunity to transition a couple blocks were things that I felt from a growing standpoint would work very well and would transition to the glass very well. Um, the first was Syrah that I planted about, I grafted about two and a half acres in 18. And then between then and now, I think I've done about 10 acres between Gamay and Syrah um, in a very granitic band on the vineyard. Uh, I don't use any herbicides, so we use a Clemens weed knife, which basically goes beneath the cordons and cuts the weeds out. It also, when it hits uh, granite rock, blur breaks, bends, shatters your blade. Ooh. So I had uh, <laughs> a couple of years when we were doing that where I was pulling lots of rocks out of specific blocks. And ultimately, that's where I transitioned um, the Gamay Noir to as well as the Syrah, which I think are just other things that work really well at in the Highlands, in our vineyard specifically, um, but also it's just one of those things of what else can be done well on a school with everything from Caraccioli sellers coming from a school from now until forever, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it will be the development of these varietals and these blends and figuring out what the best Pinot blend is, what the best Chardonnay blend is, and oh, wow, Gamay works here. What's the... How does that work? Should I be fermenting it this way, that way? Um, and I've, I, pro I process some, obviously, for Caraccioli Cellars, which is in your glass now. Um, in brand process some. So did Francisco Benuelos Jr., um, who's Dennis at Odonata's assistant. Um, and Sam Smith from Morgan made some under SLS. So the four of us all kind of made very different representations yeah. of Gamay out of our vineyard. And it's been really cool to kind of see where they are because you learn mm -hmm. a lot more from, you know, if, if it was just me learning from my wine, I learn one fourth of what I get out of tasting their three wines, knowing what they did, knowing how fermentation went. And it makes it more possible to farm the vineyard better. And it also makes it more possible to, um, continue at a higher rate of speed in terms of improving what you're doing. Sure. You can learn more. Well, Mary B. and I have been on this, um, you know, we're on a whirlwind tour of um, Monterey County um, talking to different winemakers, and we had the opportunity to taste with Ian Brand and taste his Gamay Noir. And I have to tell you, while your wine, his wine, equally beautiful, very different. Yeah. And, um, you know, I would categorize yours more as a um, Fleury, if you're familiar with the, um, the 10 crews of Beaujolais. And um, I thought his was a little bit more like Morgon. So it's, it's interesting, you know, in such a small area that you get such different expressions, depending on not just per, probably where the vineyard, the blocks of the, um, where the vines and the blocks are, but also the winemaker's hand touch. Yeah, I would say most of the difference in this Gamay between ours is all basically winemaker touch. 
in terms of pick points. Ian picked his a few days before me. Um, and then his is more carbonic than mine. So I definitely think his jumps out of the glass a lot more. It's a lot more lifted. Mm -hmm. It's probably more traditional gamay. It's more gamay-y, I guess, for a better term. Uh, let's um, coin that term. <laughs> yeah, I think ours is a little, um, a little bit more dense, a little bit more um, rich in the second half of the palate, mm -hmm. which it, it's all of our first shots at it. And I think, I mean, I'm happy with all of them that I've tasted and I'm excited to have them all have a skull on the label and showcasing this varietal out of that vineyard. And I think there's something fun to, you know, um, the different interpretations and who people drew interpretation from. I, I there's something to that. Uh, and sure. it's, it's cool. It's such a good varietal. I hope it continues to grow in popularity and that people really kind of come to know this it's 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 a beautiful wine yeah do you see uh, more winemakers um seeing what you all are doing be inspired to hey maybe we should start making gamay and maybe would santa lucia highlands monterey become known for gamay so kurt grafted a little kurt williams um who has a few vineyards in the highlands his uh stepdaughter's cory who owns cory um, he's a great farmer and he grafted a little bit last year and he works with Pizzoni. So I think Mark and Jeff are going to play with a little bit of it. I don't know where it'll end up, but from his Highlands Ranch block, he has some. I actually drove it Saturday morning and I was checking out a few different vineyards and actually cruised by to see um, just how everything was going in South or middle South Highlands compared. Sometimes I feel like I don't get out of my pocket. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, you get, I, I think that there's, there's definitely people interested in the momentum of other varietals. I mean, we're really heavily planted to Pinot. There was more Syrah 10 years ago. There's less Syrah now. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, you go through the ebb and flow of things, but I was actually talking to my grandma about it and there was a decent amount of gamay planted in the early 80s like by marisu by other oh, people really? around yeah. yeah they had napa gamay gamay beaujolais and then they had something called like pinot 2 which was actually pinot droit but they had like these different variations mm -hmm. between pinot and gamay trying to figure out what exactly would work locally so it's been um some fun conversations with me and her about me going back to gamay so to speak <laughs> and going back to gamay it, it was kind <laughs> of uh I think to me it was because it works and that was uh, first and foremost I think it works on Grand I think it works in the climate and then all of the other stuff that came out of it in terms of like all of our processing and seeing the differentiation is the fun and exciting part of it's not okay it works it's how how do I continue to make this better and do, is there applicability in other spots and I think there is I mean there's granite all over the highlands. I mm -hmm. think it works on granite. Well, from the consumer standpoint, I think it's a fun wine discovery. If you're one of those people who gets in the Cabernet, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, you know, just fall back on those old standbys. It's so fun to find a different food-friendly, you know, easy to drink um, and yet complex wine like a Gamay Noir. This is beautiful. Absolutely. And... Um, and especially, and, you know, there's folks out there, that they are just 
Pinot files. They love Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is a wine that I think, you know, they get it in their glass. They're going to love it, too. It's I, I haven't released it yet. Um, it'll Ooh, come so out. we're getting a sneak preview. Yeah, you are. Actually, or the Blanc de Blanc. So this okay. is like a, a show of sneak previews. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, but the Gamay will be released. Both the Blanc de Blanc and Gamay will be released this fall and included in some of the wine club shipments. So it's one of those things where it's, um, you know, the the progression of it over the next couple of years will be really exciting and see exactly how all the people pulling it. And I have two and a half acres more coming online next year. Well, great. Well, you, you, you're doing so much. You've got to be so busy, but, um, we were talking before we started the interview and, uh, we asked you, what do you do to kind of get away, have fun, relax? And you mentioned golf. So tell, tell me about your golf game. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty, it's one of those things where uh, you got to find something in leisure that you love to do. And when I was a youth, I played golf, played high school golf and stuff. Um, and then probably from 20 to early 30s, played a collective 10, 15 rounds. And <laughs> then at some point realized uh, I wanted, I wanted to get back into it. And I, I'm the obsessive type of person that when I do something, I do it. So uh, when I kind of made the decision to start playing again, it's been it's been really fun. I've got a group of younger guys that I play with, and then I've got a group of older guys that I play with. And uh, the day-to-day -day and the banter between it all is some of the funnest uh, times that I have in getting getting outside of the pocket and... Uh, it's, it's a great. great, it's a great sport. Although I have to say, you have, you have a young family. And when, when I was first married and we were starting our family, my husband loved golf and I kind of shut it down because I was like, you can't, this is all day followed by burgers and beers. You and can't like, leave me alone. You know, I've got a pretty great What's wife. in it for me? You know? And now she has to listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> She's pretty great. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I've got a young family. I've got a... Uh, Six-year-old Rocco, and then I've got another son on the way due end of November. Congratulations. So, thank you. Um, it might get shut down a little more, <laughs> but I'm trying to get her to be bit by the bug, too. Ah. So <laughs> she likes to play as well, so you kind of... Uh, then you get Rocco out he, there. Oh, he yeah. loves it. He's obsessed. Oh, okay. So that's the other piece of it. Rocco's obsessed, Erica's liking it, mm -hmm. and I like it. So it's been, um, it's been one of those fun things we could do, too, on, you know, Late summer night, four o'clock, you can go around and play nine holes with the three of us, and it's beautiful and corral, and it, it works out. And it's great to get outside in a different mm -hmm. different environment. Mm -hmm. we, we said on this at the beginning of the show, you're fourth generation, so you've got the fifth generation. Yeah, that's it's uh, it's pretty fun to watch them all grow up. Mm -hmm. And my brother has two children, and my cousin has three. Um, my other cousin's getting married in a couple weeks, so I'm sure there'll be some on the way with that too. So the next, the next generation of Caratrollies is definitely, um, definitely coming. It'll be fun to see whether they, they get bitten by the wine bug also and carry on your tradition. Yeah, it'll, it, it's fun. It's, I'm sure some of them will, and it'll be uh, great to see it kind of happen as it progresses. Yeah. Well, congratulations to you on that fun young well, family. We've got one last wine to taste. 
And the last wine is Syrah, uh, also 2019, um, that was grafted in 18. Um, this is all Albin Clone 1 and Albin Power Block. So from John Albin's cuttings down in Edna Valley, um, actually got the cuttings from Market Sobranis with John Albin's blessing. Um, and this was really my first, like, step out of the comfort zone in that something I thought that would work here, that had worked here, but was maybe under-marketed in weird ways. It's very hard to sell Syrah in general, like, domestically from a winery side. Mm -hmm. So um, I think regardless of the fact that the acreage had probably depleted over the last 10 to 15 years prior, uh, I was a firm believer that it worked and it did the cool climate thing that you love out of Syrah. If you love cool climate, Syrah. which I do, <laughs> but I have to say, you know, there's cool climate Syrahs out there that have that super meaty, bacony nose and that very, very savory character. I'm not getting that really here. I'm getting, more of a, it's it's there, but it's not like very um, overt, and um, but the acid's there too, and that's what I I think a problem why people don't it's a hard sell because it can be a really um, one dimensional flabby wine. Yes, there's no Syrah varies a lot in style. Where, the, where it's planted, all of those things. I think uh, the acid makes this what it needs to be, which is another reason that I thought it would work, mm -hmm. was the vineyard on a whole is a high acid vineyard. Um, and kind of retain that freshness and structure where you've mm -hmm. got the deeper, the deeper fruit, but also the savory notes that you talk about. And then I think it's kind of a dancing floor for the Monterey County, like, herb spice basket mm -hmm. of bay laurel chaparral all of those things kind of live in the background filling out the profile and i think there's a truth to that kind of throughout our wines and our red wines you definitely get mm -hmm. more of that expression you get more of like the running when it's wet outside in the morning in the chardonnay mm -hmm. and like the mm -hmm. blanc de blanc where you get like that wet pavement the wet granite and mm -hmm. but the the savory characteristic, I think, is definitely like a vein that runs through all of the wines from the site. But how they express themselves differently I, is um, always fun to me. Sure. And there's, I'm also getting some beautiful violet in the aromas. Mm, yeah. It drinks purple to me. Yes. Like when it I drink purple. this, I see purple. I love that. You know, drinking in color. Yes. <laughs> what, what, what color does it evoke for you? <laughs> <laughs> Another yummy one. That's great. Absolutely. Um, and also, before we uh, we were chit chatting before we sat down to tape this pod, and um, we started talking about your dogs, and you know you are equally as passionate about your dogs mm -hmm. as you are wine. So tell us about your dogs. This is <laughs> these are other family members yes. for sure. Well, yeah. And, for your um, dad and you. Before we found out my wife was pregnant, uh, we put a deposit down on a dog about I think three weeks before. So. All in on the training for the next 
Because four you're not going to be busy or anything. No, Might as well fine. get a puppy. It's perfect. It's all going to happen within the throes of harvest and then after harvest. Of course. Um, so I have a dog that we rescued about nine. He's going to be 10 in a couple months. Um, so then we brought a puppy into the fold. And it's actually um, Kim from the, the executive director of the MCVGA linked me up with this breeder outside of Modesto. She's an awesome lady. And uh, she breeds great dogs. So... It was just uh, the perfect time for our family. So we've got this little teddy bear named Bruno in the house that's uh, fallen Austin around. It's a and pretty we, fun time. We can talk about Bruno? No, we can. <laughs> we can. I want the stigma to be gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, your wife sounds incredible to be taking on a dog and pregnant and to have another mm-hmm. little one. She sounds like... Uh, She's a- perfectly type A for the job. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, you're a busy guy. On a typical day, where are you? Are you in Gonzales, in the the vineyards? Are you in the... (laughs) So, every day is different. Like, today was different. But I still kind of do my loop. Um, Usually start at my desk, do book work um, in terms of, like, throw things out that need to get done. Uh, Any type of Excel. I, I can do a lot more in the morning than I can later in the days kind of time progresses. Um, so that usually starts first thing in the morning. Then I go to the vineyard, check the vineyard, converse with Alberto, make sure we're all on the same page. Nothing's changed from the last time we talked. Go to the winery, talk to the winemaking team, see how all of that's set up. And then a couple days a week, I'll probably bring wine to Carmel with me when I come to Carmel. Um, putting in a little uh, home vineyard for a guy in Carmel Valley. So there's been a stop there recently. But then I usually come to Carmel in the afternoon, um, meet with the hospitality team, try to spend a little bit of time in the tasting room. Uh, My favorite part of COVID was not having to travel. Mm -hmm. So when that kind of happened, I realized uh, how I could best be able to still touch as many customers as I had been even though it was going to be differently. And what that looked like was me um, spending a little bit more time in the tasting room, which I would rather do than in some random state in general. So um, I kind of end my day here and then go home and probably tie in a few loose, loose ends with emails and whatnot. But I run around a lot. I'm not in one spot. It's not always the same, but kind of looks like that. <laughs> so for anyone who thought that a, a vintner lived a life of ease and luxury it's a lot of work you're putting in the hours and um and obviously the proof of that and the the results of that are in the glass and we've sure enjoyed getting to know you today and tasting all of these lovely wines thank you scott thank you for having me i really appreciate it it's been fantastic and um and how can folks find you um so we actually dropped a new website last week so caretrollycellars.com Um, is one good way to kind of a central repository for all of our information. Um, Downtown Carmel, if you're in the area, come to the tasting room, book an appointment. We're relatively busy, but you'll have a great time. You'll get exposed to what we have. Um, Phone number there is 831-622-7722. And I don't do the talk thing. So our reservation book is a black book that's literally all written. <laughs> wow. So if you That is old want, school. Yep. I'd rather talk to you on the phone than have you make a reservation. So that's the <laughs> easiest way to really come in, experience the wines, and um, 
it's a good first intro for sure. Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing these beautiful lines. We're super excited. It's, and I've known you for some time, so it's been really, really fun to see how things have evolved and just keep improving and improving. I, I mean, I, I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank, Thank you, you again. Very yeah. much. Really appreciate it, ladies. And Cheers. good luck to you and the winery and your family. Yes, exactly. Cheers. 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 Sip, sip, hooray, Scott. Well, that's going to do it for our show today. We're so glad you found Sip Sip Hooray podcast. We thank you for listening. And we really encourage you to share our podcast with your friends. So go to whatever podcast platform you listen to our pod on and be sure to rate us or review us. It helps other people find our podcast too. And be sure to subscribe to the pod so you don't miss another episode. But there's plenty of episodes we've got on our website from past interviews that you won't want to miss. So visit com. And we're also, of course, on social media. You can find us at Sip Sip Hooray Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas for future podcasts or great finds you want to share with us, just DM us and we'll get back to you. Thank you for listening. I'm Mary Babbitt. Cheers and Sip Sip Hooray. Cheers to you, Mary Orland. Sip Sip Hooray.